0: Alright, well as we come to this tremendous book of Daniel again, uh, we are in the 11th chapter verses 21 to 35 is our text and as we continue in Daniel 11 tonight, our focus is on the last Seleucid king, that is the king of the north, who was Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. Again, I would refer you to your sheets, and Steve and I have got an extra half here for you and we're done, so come grab it, uh, where we delineate the 14 kings that followed Alexander the Great, the uh, six, count quickly, two, four, six, seven, uh, six, um, Seleucid kings, excuse me, the six Kings of the south, the Ptolemies of Egypt, and the eight kings of the north, the Seleucids, of which the final is the individual we're speaking about in Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. Arguably the most wicked of all of the kings, and we want to specifically recognize his impact tonight on Israel. Because again, as that final king and as that focus of Israel as the land bridge and on the repeated aspect of the emphasis of all of scripture on Israel and the redemptive focus that is placed on them, we want to identify those aspects as related to this individual we want to be reminded that for the first time since the great of alexand since the death of alexander the great which again you see at the top of your sheets in 323 bc and the dividing up of his kingdom egypt and the ptolemies have for the first time lost control of israel they have controlled the land bridge so they have had the upper hand In the war that was ongoing in that time as both the kings of the north and the south that have now taken dominance are attempting to conquer one another to have the dominion that was their predecessor Alexander the Great. So they no longer control the land bridge which is Israel that connects the continent of Africa to the continents of Europe and Asia. So really that, that small little piece of country is the pivotal part of the connectivity of all of the land masses on that half of our planet. And so it was very, very significant. And Israel is now controlled by Antiochus Fourth Epiphanes. And Antiochus has effectively stopped the ritual sacrifices of the temple. In Daniel 8, 9-14, to which we looked at, we saw this prophesied for six and a third years or specifically 2,300 days and nights, which we identified as a specific 24-hour day as we see in the book of Genesis. His first attack of the sacrificial system was the removal of the rightful high priest Onias the third who Antioch replaced with his own priest, Menelus, not of the Aaronic lineage. And we recognize that there becomes question whether ever again we would see the Aaronic lineage moving forward. There's some discussion that perhaps when we get to the end of our text tonight and we start talking about the Maccabean revolution, that Judas Maccabeus and then his brother Joseph were then in the priestly line. And there's some discussion and debate about that from a theological point of view. But it's clear that Menelus had no business as the high priest. And because there was no king, the high priest controlled the sacrificial system. Which means effectively, he controlled the country. And now, Antiochus has placed his own priest in that place. This occurred in verse 22 in our first point, a time of intrigue. A time of intrigue. And we talked about how that word intrigue, which will come up again at the end of our message tonight, was really well translated as either smoothness or deception. And this is how Antiochus came into his role as the covenant. Yeah, In the covenant, and I said verse 22, I meant verse 21, it is the end of verse 21, in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue or by smoothness or by deception. So then in verse 28, in our second point, a time of invasion, Antiochus further decimated the sacrificial system by taking all the temple fixtures and stripping the gold off the door. So he first comes, pulls the rightful high priest and put his priest in place. Well, the sacrifices go on, but obviously it's no longer one who has any connectivity to the sacrificial system and the Mosaic law. So there's a problem, but it's still ongoing. Then he comes and he takes all of the artifacts out of the temple. He takes... The golden altar. He takes the golden lampstand. He takes the golden table of presents. Or the table of showbread. He takes all of the artifacts. That are associated with those implements. And he strips the gold off the doors. The sacrifices are going on. But it's kind of like you're walking into an empty room. And going okay what do we do next? Now we shouldn't be too surprised by that. Because the focus of the sacrificial system. Was the day of atonement. Where the blood was taken and put in where? Inside the Holy of Holies on the Ark of the Covenant exactly. Well that's been gone since Jeremiah's time. So there's been a weakness that's been ongoing in the system anyway. So they're continuing to try to limp along despite this second decimation of the system. And in that visit, as we mentioned, he killed 80,000 Jews and imprisoned or sold into slavery another 80,000 Jewish individuals, primarily men in those two circumstances. Although crippled and arguably disembalmed the sacrificial system, continued to limp along. And now in our third point, a time of annihilation, Antiochus again seeks to invade and capture Egypt. But he is chased out by the ever-increasing forces of Rome, specifically the ships of Katim that come in against him in verse 30 which is the Roman Navy dispatched from Cyprus as the Jewish historian Josephus recounts for us and explains that Cyprus is the Hebrew word Katim, although it was the Roman Navy that came. And we talked about how the Roman Garrison, the Roman consul, came on shore and delivered the edict to Antiochus IV that said, get out and go home or we will kill you. And as Antiochus says, well, give me a little time to think about it. And so he takes the stick and draws a circle around him in the sand and says, you've got till you come out of that circle to decide. So there's your time. And so Antiochus decides, of course, at the threat of death that he will return home. So let's come back to our message title, Ending Epics of Ancient Israel, and our theme, Four Facets of Israel's History, Affirming God's Providence. We've titled the message such because this is effectively the end of ancient Israel. Don't misunderstand, this is not the end of Israel, as some of our amillennial brothers and sisters would say, this is the end of ancient Israel. And we do see God's providence in an incredible way as we move through this, as we continue in our third point, a time of annihilation. Let's look at our verses beginning in verse 29. Follow along, Daniel 11 and 29. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. But this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Katim will come against him, therefore... He will be disheartened and he will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. The first appointed time that we see in our text is that at the beginning of verse 29 and that is the same Hebrew word that we saw back in verse 27. Note we have seen it two times. We are going to see it one more time tonight, and it becomes a pivotal word. When we see repetition in our Bibles, we recognize from our principles of hermeneutics that that's important. Well, this word is even more important. It is going to connect for us all the ambiguity that so many people have as this prophecy of Daniel moves from near fulfillment In the 200 to 400 year period from when he is given it and recounts it. To the far fulfillment of the end of times. And it's all going to connect to this word appointed time. So make note. So as we recognize the appointed time. And how important it is because it shows us God's control. Who appoints the time? Well it is God that does so. He appoints all time forever and always has. And we note about this that this is the important reaction. Also noted are the uh, two ending time references in verse 29. Uh, literally translating the last two Hebrew terms as, and it will be like the first time and like the future time. Our New American Standards translates that as... um Uh, But this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. Which is not horrible. But it does lose the emphasis on time. Again that literal Hebrew of those last two words. Showing the emphasis at the end of the sentence. Is it will not be like the first time. And like the future time. He's alluding to something there. The appointed time. There's a first time. And now there's something else. But notice it's not a last time. It's a future time so keep track of that as well a lot of time going on hence all of our points being labeled as such the um, this this again isn't referring to another coming this future time is not referring to another coming of Antiochus into Egypt as he won't again return to Egypt and we see that in verse 29, at the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. But this last time, or this first time, it will not turn out the same way that it did before. He won't be back. This is Antiochus's last engagement into Egypt. And also giving us more detail, and there's some... Uh, some underlying meaning, some hidden meaning in those two terms of time that we want to to note and keep track of. These, again, two two terms are so important as we will see as we get to verse 36 in our text, even verse 35. So Antiochus is sent home by Rome, and on his way back north, Antiochus again returns to vent his frustration on Israel. This is the third time in verse 30. Antiochus delivers the final blow to end the temple sacrifices here. This is probably the most famous text of, the ancient, of ancient Israel as it relates to the Maccabees and all that went on. And these are the specific details that we see written about in 1st and 2nd Maccabees. So Antiochus delivers this final brillo to end the sacrifices. He is enraged at the Jews seeking to honor the Holy Covenant. He's done everything to destroy the covenant. He moved the priest out. He moved the articles out. And and now those that want to continue to obey the Mosaic law, they're acting contrary to his high priest, Menelus. So in taking action, he again begins killing and taking captive Jews. Only this time it is not just the men. He is also killing and taking captive men and women and children. And he is not just killing women and children, but he is slaughtering many of them on the temple mount as a statement of his anger against them. So he is... Selective as well. It's not every Jewish man, woman, and child. Notice. It is those who forsake the covenant. Those who show regard. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. He's enraged at those taking Holy Covenant. At holding the covenant. And he takes action. And it is the apostates those that apostasize from the law that he spares and shows favor and that's what we're seeing in verse 30 he will be disheartened he will return and become enraged he's disheartened because he was beat down in Egypt and sent home with his tail between his legs so he gets mad and and all of God's men let, let's just go ahead and take a pause here and say when when we have something that doesn't go our way And we become disheartened that if we turn around and we become angry, we are in sin. And we should not do that. And I know none of you you ever have, but there was maybe one time in my life where I did. And so let's remember and not act that way. Because clearly this is the wrong action and we see why. But nonetheless, he's enraged at the Holy Covenant. He takes action killing them and he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. For those that apostatize, he will bring favor to them. So those that apostatize from the law will be treated better than the others. And again, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, particularly 1st Maccabees chapter 1 and 2nd Maccabees chapters 4 and 5 detail this. And you say, where do we find that? Well, it's not critical that you do. And the reason that it is not in our Bible, but is in the Catholic Bible is because they have viewed it as part of the canon. But it is not because it does not pass the standard of authenticity Which is that it is inerrant in what is written and also is written by the one who is attested to the text. And those are the two facets by which those texts were assessed and they failed. So they are not in our Bible but they are in a Catholic Bible and you can find them also online if you desire to get more detail. And I hope you will. There's some incredible information about all that goes on through this period of time. Then in verse 31, excuse me, his army comes in and they do so to protect Antiochus' high priest, Menelus, and they desecrate the sanctuary fortress. We see that forces from him will arise. This is his army. They will desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifices. The sanctuary fortress is the temple mount. Think about what the Temple Mount in Israel looks like. If you've been there, you know clearly. But if you've even seen a map in your Bible, you'll recognize that all around the Temple Mount is this big high wall. It was like a fortress. So this is the Temple Fortress. At that time, of course, there were no uh, shrines to uh, other gods as there are today. It was just the, the Holy Temple and the other uh, details of the Temple Mount. So they come in. To destroy the Temple Mount. Tanner notes they began by establishing, not only are they killing women and children on the Temple Mount, but they also establish sacred prostitution on the Mount. Tanner further notes that he completely stops the Jewish sacrifices. So no more even trying to carry on the system, it's done. And he also bans circumcision. As First Maccabees notes, remember, when a child was born to a Jewish family on the eighth day, they were to take their sacrifice to the temple and offer it as the child was circumcised. No more. All of that is done. The final act of setting up the abomination of desolation is uh, a multifaceted atrocity that Antiochus orders. His soldiers first desecrate the entire temple area. They began by taking all of the Torah scrolls that they could find and burning them on that temple mount. Remember, that was that was a very big deal. Um, I was a boy scout. And when I was in scouts, one of our jobs was that old flags that were tattered and torn were to be ceremonially retired because we believed that there was an importance to the American flag. And I still do, in case anybody wonders. Well, this is far, far and above that. When the Jews made copies of the Torah, they meticulously counted every letter. So that as they were making copies of a particular book... They knew exactly what the center letter of the book was. They knew what the quarter letters of the book were. They knew what the eighth letters of the book were. And as they're copying, if they were not on the right letter when they got to that point, they would ceremonially cut and burn the scroll in homage to God because it had an error and it was not acceptable. What an incredible thought. But he is now burning all of the Torah scrolls and desecrating that very sacred ritual. He also forbids Sabbath keeping and violators are killed. They also sacrificed a pig, a forbidden animal, on the holy altar. They took what Dr. MacArthur calls, kind of nasty, sow's broth And they sprinkled it all over the temple and the temple mount. And so they completely desecrated all of those details. And then they went into the holy place. Now vacant because of the removal of all those artifacts. And the different instruments of the sacrifices. And as he goes in there he takes that pig's blood and spreads it all over through the holy place and through the holy of holies. And they also set up altars throughout Jerusalem and Judah that they required pigs and other inappropriate animals to be sacrificed other unclean animals to be sacrificed and they left soldiers there to enforce the sacrifices and to make the Jewish people partake in those sacrifices. Uh, A pagan sacrificial altar after they burnt the first pig on the bronze altar, a pagan sacrificial altar was set up over the top of the bronze altar. And the final element for which this abomination of excuse me, abomination of desolation is named was the setting up of a statue in the holy place. They set up a statue to Zeus, uh, the Greek God. And so... All of this happened and this setting up of the statue to the Greek God occurred as recorded by Josephus, by the Maccabees, and in another source as December 15th, 167 BC. You can note on your timetable some of the details of Antiochus' life and where we are at this point. We are about to move to the hundred, the year 166 BC and thus within two years of the end of his life. But this was a horrific act. A pagan sacrificial altar set up. The pigs and the unclean animals sacrificed. And the sacrificial system is now completely removed in a time of annihilation. Which leads to our fourth point. A time of abolition. A time of abolition. Look at verse 32 of Daniel chapter 11. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the holy covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days." Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help. And many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. Because it is still to come to or at the appointed time. Still to come at the appointed time. Verse 32 begins with a summary of the wicked Jewish people who deny the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And in that case, in verse 32, 32, it contrasts those who won't bow to Antiochus and his soldiers and his desecration, his false sacrifice, and his abomination of desolation. And so we have... The smooth words that he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. This is the prophetic introduction of what becomes the Maccabean revolt. And that led, that is led particularly and attributed to Judas Maccabeus, who also incidentally is helped by Rome. Rome's obviously not very happy with old Antiochus. And so they decide that in all that he's got going on, because the other thing that Rome realizes is what we've been talking about. What's Israel's great value? Oh, there is land. Oh, there's riches. There is a fertile soil. It's the land of milk and honey. There's figs. There's pomegranates. There's all these things we read about. But it is the strategic center of the connection of the continents. Rome does not miss that. So they're on board to help the Maccabees in this endeavor. We find that in extra-biblical sources, incidentally. So we have the prophetic introduction of this revolt, and the first act of revolt was by the father of Judas Maccabeus, who was Mattathias. Mattathias moved to a village outside of Jerusalem when Antiochus desecrated the temple. He was done. I'm I'm out of here. I'm done with all of this. So he moves to a village outside of Jerusalem called Modine. When when Antiochus' official arrived in Modine, he commanded the sacrifice of a pig. When one of the Jewish locals came forward to sacrifice as commanded by Antiochus' official, Mattathias goes up and kills him on the altar and turns around and takes Antiochus' soldier and kills him and then dismantles the altar. And boom, we are off to the races. The first act of rebellion and revolt is a huge one and... Antiochus is none too happy about Mattathias' action. So, as Tanner notes, this bold step launched the Jewish rebellion against Antiochus IV of Epiphanes that became known as the Maccabean Revolt. In verse 33, we see details of this revolt. <clears throat> First, those with insight will give understanding to the many. There is those that possess knowledge and they will convey it to others who are part of the revolt. They're going to recognize, okay, we're not going to stand for this. And so we are going to help our brothers. We're going to enlighten them. And we're going to help them stand and become part of this revolt. It's important to note here some false conclusions Drawn about this group that are labeled the people of insight. The Hebrew word for these men of insight is Hamaskalim. The Hamaskalim. Some commentators have associated this word with Harabim. Which is a group from the Qumran community. Now let's recognize where fulfillment of this is occurring. We've been talking about fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy made back in 536 BC that is now occurring in 167 BC. The Qumran community from which we have the Qumran scrolls, massive find of tremendous artifacts about the scriptures and other documents. Was very near this period. Somewhere around probably the Qumran community was probably somewhere between 50 to 150 BC. So we're right in this window. And some say, oh well when we take this role, this this word, the men of intrigue. And connect it to the men of the Qumran community. Because there are parallels there. And so these two are effectively associated in the same men. Well, that is a serious problem. It seems innocent enough, but it is not. Those who make the connection do so in order to deny the time of Daniel's prophecy. Say, Daniel didn't write in 536 BC, this chapter 10, 11, and 12. He wrote it in 167 or someone else wrote it in 167 and attributed it to Daniel. Because these two words, the Moskalim and the Rabim are associated. Well, the words indeed are associated, but not at the time frame of the same occurrence. And those who would say so, again, do so. And as they do, it is an attack upon Scripture. It is t- an attack upon the inerrancy. And it is an attack upon the inspiration of Scripture. So as you study other commentaries and other works on Daniel, and I really hope you will, when you hear that, when you read Qumran Community, go, oop. this person probably denies the authorship Of the prophecies in the second half of Daniel. So be alert to that. We note what happens to these people in verse 33 who have received this insight. They are often killed in the revolt, some of them by the Syrian army with the sword, others are burned by the Syrian army. Some of the Syrian army comes and takes them captive takes their home captive and pillages and plunders. And this goes on for an extended time as we see in verse 33. One other vital thing to note about verse 33 is what is designated with the insight that these men had and taught to others. Commentator Hurd tells us that there was always two Primary components of their teaching and two primary outcomes. Two components and two outcomes. The two components of the teaching were always soteriological and eschatological salvation and end times. The two outcomes of the teaching. Are knowledge and suffering. Components of the teaching are salvation and end times prophecy. And the result is knowledge and suffering. Think about how those come together for just a minute. The vital thing to note is that these men that come together. This end times teaching. This eschatology. It motivated people. To see God's redemptive plan. Oh, I'm going through this, but God has a plan. And he told me about it in his book. That means the other thing I better do is I better live in a manner obedient to the word. I know God's got a plan, and I know part of God's plan tells me how to live, how to pursue holiness, how to be saved, and to live an obedient lifestyle. I better be pursuing soteriology, and I better be pursuing eschatology. And so that's what these men are teaching. These individuals who have insight, and they're bringing teaching forward. They're to motivate to holy living. And this resulted in a powerful countenance to endure suffering. I have this knowledge. The two outcomes are knowledge and suffering. I have this knowledge. I can endure this suffering. I can go forth against this wicked man because he is coming against what my God has told me to do. Beloved, this is exactly the same today. This is why we're going through the book of Daniel. It teaches you about eschatology. It teaches you about the end times. It should motivate you to greater holiness, to understand what it means to be saved and what we must do as a result of our salvation. And you say, well, I, you know, these people are they're being stupid run through with the sword, they're being burned, their homes are taken, they're being plundered and pillaged. You know, we're not suffering like that. But are we even willing to suffer some people abusing us because we would proclaim the name of Christ? We might consider that suffering and to some degree it is nothing compared to this. And there may be much more coming. There may be much, much more coming. I don't remember if I mentioned last week, but just last week in England, uh, a woman was jailed for praying silently outside of an abortion clinic. Are we ready? It's not far, but are we, are we preparing now? What's harder You know, what What did Jesus say? What's harder to tell someone that your sins are forgiven or to heal him? What's harder? To suffer a little shame and ridicule for proclaiming the name of Jesus or to have your home run over and to have your children killed in front of you for your faith. Don't you think one might lead into the other? I don't know. It seems to me like there might be a transition there that would help us. And this is what we must understand, beloved. This is where we are. This, this meets us right where we are today. And we've got to be preparing for it. In verse 34, we're told that the revolt gets reinforcements amidst the battle and their casualty count. But we're told that these other rebels are those of hypocrisy. We know that a hypocrite is one who falsely presents themselves, but their hypocrisy, as in all scripture, is related to their faith. They are saying that they are saved, but they are not. And so also as the word is used throughout the scripture. So these are hypocrites about their faith. They are motivated these are, are not motivated by the truth of soteriology and eschatology, but rather by the agitation of a common enemy, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. These are still Jewish people, but they are not the ones who are motivated in this regard. In verse 35, we see that the new rebels are truly committed to supporting the Maccabean revolt. Again, not because of the truth of doctrine. Or as supporting the law in the Mosaic covenant, even though they are Jewish. And this is evidence because some of them die. We see at the beginning of verse 35. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join them in their hypocrisy. So when they fall, this is the ongoing death of the faithful who have been taught... By the masculine who have been taught eschatology. Taught soteriology. And as they're being killed. They'll be helped by others. Who are these hypocrites. And some of those who have insight will fall. So they will die too. These individuals. And, and again this is evidence because they're willing to die. Now you don't hypocritically. Pursue Anything if the result is death. That's where the ruse goes away. If you're gonna die for it, okay, I'm out. Okay, well, these people are willing to die, so they're all in. The hypocrisy is not towards the cause, it is towards the faith that undermine or that that continues to enlighten those who are truly part of the faithful. And that's where the line gets drawn. But these are all in. In verse 35, these are called the ones having insight. That's an unfortunate translation. Because back in verse 33, we also saw the same word insight used to describe those teaching doctrine. Who motivate the faithful Jews in the Maccabean Revolt. They are in verse 33, the ones we noted as the Ha-Maskalim. Here in verse 35, this is a different Hebrew word. It is the same Hebrew word that concluded verse 21. If you bounce back up and look at that, they seize the kingdom by intrigue. This word in verse 35 would have been much better translated as intrigue, as smoothness or deception. As was mentioned back in our message on verse 21, intrigue or deception relates to the hypocrites in verse 34, not the masculine in verse 33. What's the big deal, Scott? Well, just this. If we wrongly understand the text. Then we look at the rest of verse 35. And it talks about purification. Doesn't it? It talks about the fact. That in order to refine purge. And make them pure. Until the end time. Because it is still to come at the appointed time. So if we misunderstand. That somehow. These in verse 35. That have insight. Are the same ones. That have insight in verse 33. We miss the fact. That they are not that group. But rather they are the ones. That are teaching. And giving instruction. And having, having understanding. So it's important for us to understand this distinction of those that are being spoken about. Verse 33, those who have insight among the people there are the the, the men of integrity. They are the men of faith. They are the men following God. Here in verse 35, those who have insight really should be more those who have intrigue. And it's relating to those in verse 34 who are the hypocrites, who are following for. Inappropriate reasons. So we notice that in all times, there is a purpose at the end of verse 35 to all of this to purge and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. God is sovereignly and divinely controlling every facet and every detail of everything that goes on on this planet. And not only this, but he prophetically is telling us about it 400 years before it occurs. To incredible minutiae and detail. This is the ending epics of ancient Israel as our title proclaims. Each of our four points have affirmed God's specific providence, especially as related to Israel. Now, the end of ancient Israel Is not further described here. But. In 146 AD. The Romans win final conquest of Egypt. And solidify the Roman Empire. And will soon come. And take the final little piece of the land bridge. Now possessing both sides. Which makes Israel less needful to hold. And will ultimately take that. In about another hundred years from this time, as they continue and move forward in their empire and, and the conquests that they are all about, so as we recognize this, the end of ancient Israel that's described, the end of Antiochus the Epiphanes also is not described, because one, the story isn't about him. He is just a player in this story. It's about Israel as we've continued to express in this section. But also because too, Antiochus IV Epiphanes is a foreshadowing of him to is, who is to come, namely the Antichrist of Revelation. And Israel will continue to be refined until the end time, which is the appointed time at the end of verse 35. Israel is yet still being refined today until we get to that appointed time. I've put a summary, Uh, if you haven't picked it up yet, there's a a half sheet out on the table there, that is a summary of the Maccabean Revolt, that I think you'll find very interesting, gives you a few more details, and I didn't have time to go through it and read it, so I just thought I'd print it for you, and you can spend some time looking into it. In addition to that summary that I've given to you, uh, additionally on the source notes, Dr. MacArthur... In his study Bible on Daniel 8, 23 to 25, indicates that Antiochus died broken without human agency, as the text tells us in Daniel 8, 23, due to insanity and disease of the bowels. And we know that that was just two years later in 164 BC. But this leaves us on the verge of some incredibly exciting verses. The details that we're going to see beginning in verse 36 and to the end of the chapter are nowhere else in scripture. They are alluded to, but the color and the power and the drama that's brought forth occurs nowhere else but in the book of Daniel. And Lord willing, we'll return to those next week and understand more of how in these phrases of time, The appointed time, the first time, and a future time. We have an indication that's pointing us to the last time, to the end times, and to the last human ruler prior to the return of Christ in the Antichrist. Will you pray with me, please? Father, how powerful is your word How amazing it is, Father, for us to look into this and understand the specificity by which you bring all of this detail. Father Daniel, as we have studied back in chapter 10, he didn't understand all these nuances. Gabriel came to give him insight, but even then he could not have recognized the incredible detail that you were bringing to his mind so that he could write them for us. How we thank you. How we thank you that prophecy and eschatology encourages our hearts that we too would live lives of holiness, lives of faithfulness, lives of pursuing a greater understanding of the gospel and proclaiming that gospel to the world around us. Father, the suffering has not come to our land as in others. We do not suffer as the pastors and men and women and children in Mali, who are being killed this day. We do not suffer as Christians in other lands that are being arrested for silent prayer. Lord, but strengthen us that we would understand that suffering is that which we must endure and embrace. And that part of that suffering father is not being ashamed of your son, not being ashamed of the gospel and showing father, our willingness to proclaim that truth. No matter what marginalizing, no matter what scorn, no matter what shame, no matter what belittlement and beriding we might receive that father, you alone would be glorified. And that in this, we would be better prepared. For Father, we know that should you should tarry in your perfect timetable and Lord Jesus, should it be some time before you come to take us to be with you? Lord, this will certainly come to our land. May we be ready. May we be faithful to live this out so as to teach our children, to teach our grandchildren. Because Father, we know that they learn by what they see in us. May we be those who speak the name of Jesus Christ, the only name under the heavens or on the earth by which men can be saved, and all for your glory, if you would be so pleased as to use it to bring others to a knowledge of yourself. And we give you praise for this, asking it in Jesus' name, amen.